Good evening. We'll go ahead and get started if uh, if we can get our find our places. We're in Psalm 49 tonight. Psalm 49. A couple of quick announcements, and then we'll get started. First, it's good to see each of you tonight. And, uh, we've got a few people that are under the weather, and some that are working. So, if you don't see them here, I pray for them. They're probably in need of it. Uh, Sunday uh, morning, we start our Bible conference, and we have a little change of plans for Sunday school. Uh, Sunday school will be uh, in here. Every class, high school and up, will be here in the sanctuary, and uh, the um, or the auditorium, I should say. Um, there is a group, this Proclaim Praise group, that is coming with Pensacola, and they there are five of them. And they will give their testimonies and sing during Sunday school. It's about a 30 or 35 minute program. And uh, then once that's over, uh, we'll dismiss Sunday school. We come back into worship at regular time, 1045. And then Dr. Amsbob will be preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. And uh, Doc, I think I included in your email, if your class wants to meet at 930 and do your preliminaries, we won't, everybody else won't be coming in here until around 945. So you have time to do that if you need to. Uh, so uh, hopefully you can be here with us uh, for those uh, meetings. Um, and I expect that they will be uh, very good. I'm looking forward to hearing Dr. Amsbaugh preach. And uh, I think he's going to be uh, quite the teacher and uh, help us in our growth and discipleship. So. Uh, remember those things as you pray this week and as you prepare for Sunday and come expecting a blessing. All right, let's open in prayer and then we'll read Psalm 49. Father, we thank you for this good night. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunities to be here and uh, to share with one another. Lord, to spend time in Bible study, to spend time in devotion, and to spend time in prayer. Lord, I'm thankful for each and every uh, soul that's here tonight. Father, I pray for those who long to be here and could not. I pray for those who are uh, at home uh, watching. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless them and strengthen them. Help us, Lord, as we seek to grow in grace and knowledge. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 49. We'll read all 20 verses. And then we'll share a little bit from this psalm. It's a little different than the other psalms that we've had uh, to date. See if it sounds different to you. <laughs> Hear this, all you people, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding, and I will incline mine ear to a parable I will open my dark saying upon the heart. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my hills shall compass about me? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish, brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. 
their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beast that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Be not afraid, be not thou afraid, when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dieth he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. Does that sound like the other psalms that we've had? It's a little different, isn't it? This psalm is a wisdom psalm. It is a wisdom poem. It would fit in with writings like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, possibly even parts of the Song of Solomon, but mainly Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's dealing with um, the age-old problem of the prosperity of the wicked. And uh, Psalm 73 does this in a very similar fashion. Uh, Asaph is a little bit more, in Psalm 73, he's a little more, I think, a little more despondent and therefore a little more expressive, but it's a similar subject. Uh, not only is it a wisdom psalm, it is also considered as a reflective or a meditative psalm. So it is something that you would think on. That's why the, you see the word selah in there on multiple occasions because the psalmist is saying, just think about that for a minute. Just consider the, the indications of that statement. Um, if we think about that, uh, in short, this meditative psalm, the meditation would be this. We shouldn't fear powerful, wicked men because they will someday die, but God will redeem you from your death. Now, that's very close to a thesis or a theme but it certainly is the reflection or the meditation. And both of those truths, according to the Bible knowledge commentary, uh, this psalm draws on themes used extensively in Ecclesiastes. Among those are the transitory nature of life. Do you remember that passage in Ecclesiastes? I, I know well that you do. Uh, to everything turn. Uh, uh, to everything there is a season. And I almost quoted the song there. <laughs> uh, to everything there's a season, there's a time to die, and a time to be born, a time to laugh, and a time to cry. Uh, that's Ecclesiastes 3. That is talking about the transitory nature of life. That life comes and goes. Uh, and the limitations of learning and wealth, again, both of those are themes that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, where he talks about he tried wisdom and he tried wealth, and he tried joy, uh, and he, the wine, 
and none of that worked for him. And of course, he comes to the conclusion that the answer is to, to pursue God. Psalm 49, 15 is a clear promise of the resurrection. So uh, that coming from Holman. Um, another comment here, and this is uh, from William McDonald. One of the greatest riddles of life is how the wicked so often enjoy material prosperity while believers are often poor and dispossessed. But this is not the whole story. The wealth in which the ungodly trust so devoutly will fail them in their hour of greatest need. It cannot save them from dying. They cannot enjoy it forever, nor can it prevent corruption in the grave. They can neither take it with them nor come back to enjoy it. In the long run, it is foolish to trust in money rather than in the Lord. That's the gist of this message. Again, that's William MacDonald. According to BibleRef.com, uh, very similar to Psalm 73, this passage tackles the riddle of how to respond to prosperity among those who reject God. And again, Asaph deals with that in Psalm 73. But do we, do we comprehend that, that he's calling it a riddle, uh, that mystery, how they are blessed? Uh, we think about, think about some of the great villains of the last decade uh, and how they continue to, it seems that they continue to prosper, or we may even use the terminology, they continue to get away with it. Think about uh, the likes of Jeffrey Epstein and that, that wickedness that he participated in for so long and, and at such a posh level of life and uh, the, 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 the various entities in Hollywood and, and along the political stage and, and in that area where they just continue to, it looks like, get away with everything and they're prospering. Uh, that's kind of the concept is why is that? Why does God allow that? Maybe what we think, uh, or, or how is that right? And what the psalmist is going to teach and very clearly Psalm 73 does, and this does as well, this Psalm 49 is that it is momentary. It looks like they're winning, but all they are doing is buying their eternal condemnation. That's what they're doing. And so uh, Psalm 73 describes it as uh, they'll, it'll be as if they've awoken from a dream and it's all over. Uh, it's that way. And so uh, we see a lot of those themes in this psalm. Um, another one, let's see here, Matthew Poole says some similar things talking about the time of the psalm. He said this psalm is penned upon the same occasion <clears throat> with Psalm 39 and Psalm 73, to wit, upon the contemplation of the afflictions of God's people and of the prosperity and glory of ungodly men, to design is to the design is to justify God's providence in this dark dispensation and to show that all things being considered, good men have no cause for immoderate dejection of spirit, nor wicked men for glorying in their present felicities. Uh, when he says that this psalm is penned upon the same occasion as Psalm 39 or Psalm 73, what he's saying is that it's timeless. It's timeless. There's any 
point in history, uh, today, uh, any point in the future, any point in history past, long, long time ago, there were classes of people, and there were wicked people who were prospering, and there were good people who were despairing. Any time, it is timeless. And I've got news for you. Unfortunately, it will be that way until the Lord establishes his kingdom. And so he's saying that that's the occasion. There is no particular occasion. It's the same occasion as the others to witness the con contemplation of the afflictions of God's people. And so that's the time, and so we can't assign it to a particular historical event. The thesis of the psalm, I've, I've got three here, uh, and these three are uh, from, one is from Explain the Book, uh, one is from Jameson Fawcett, and one is from the Bible, Bible Knowledge Commentary. The psalm instructs and consoles. It teaches that earthly advantages are not reliable for permanent happiness, and that however prosperous worldly men may be for a time, their ultimate destiny is ruined while the pious are safe in God's care. Now listen, uh, before I read these other two, it just occurred to me that we could get distracted here. We're not talking about uh, the demise of all wealthy people. The wealth is irrelevant. We're not talking about the demise of all popular and famous people. The popularity, the fame are irrelevant. We're talking about the demise of ungodly people who by ungodly means become wealthy and prosperous and popular, right? And so we don't want to get off on that. Uh, if the Lord blesses you in particular in a particular way with notoriety or financial ability, as long as you honor God with that, I have no problem with that. Uh, hear me, Lord, I have no problem with that. I'm just saying I'm teasing. All right, in the final analysis, uh, this one says, in the final analysis, the hope of the righteous is better than the false security of the wicked. That's a, that's a one-word thesis, or one-sentence thesis. Reality in this world of wicked men who are also powerful is a dreaded one. So it's common, right? It's very common that someone who is despotically wicked is also ultimately powerful. It's common. It's a, it's a dreadful truth, but it's a truth just the same. Think about the penmen. The penmen here, again, is the sons of Korah. So not one in particular. These guys must have been a writing troupe, and they didn't care who got the credit because... Uh, they're not assigned particularly, but it is that group of men and those worship leaders. I looked at several different titles. I love, uh, I've really grown to love that. I, I don't do that for any other passages, uh, but in these psalm studies, I have grown to love just how many titles can I find because these uh, psalms oftentimes are so um, uh, without context that you see how they title it. You don't have to read their commentary. You realize they're all thinking along the same lines. And so uh, the Bible Believer's Commentary, that's William MacDonald, The Wicked and Their Wealth. That's what he calls this. Uh, James Lindbergh, who is the working preacher, 
at Luther uh, Seminary. Lifestyles of the Rich and Ransomed. I thought that was pretty good. Lifestyles of the Rich and Ransomed. Uh, McGee uh, titles it, The End of Those Who Boast Themselves in Their Riches. Phillips titles it, Worthless Wealth. And I believe Phillips had been reading Scroge because Scroge calls it Worthless Worldly Wealth. So they were, they were together on that. Uh, and then this last... Uh, other consideration, and then we'll get into the outline. This is from, again, BibleRef.com, uh, which I found to be a pretty, pretty reliable um, Bible commentary source. There's not a lot there. It's, it's really it's just a little bit on the top. Um, and I just kind of compiled this off of, his, off of that website. The subject of this psalm is depicted as the riddle. In this case, that means something hard to understand or frustration which requires wisdom to untangle. According to the introduction, the message is valuable for all people. That includes those who are rich or poor, powerful or weak. The mystery in question is how to react to people who are both wicked and rich. Some appear to live lives of comfort and prestige though their hearts are opposed to God. Meanwhile, godly people often suffer. And this is a topic, addre- this is a topic addressed in other Psalms and in the Proverbs. This can be discouraging to those who faithfully follow the Lord. However, those who reject God can only have temporary false security. Money and prestige do not buy pardon from sin. Eventually, everyone dies, and the rich will leave their money behind for others. Only the God-fearing person has hope in eternity. Those who trust in wealth instead of God have a final destiny. Um, I'm going to uh, share with you, I believe I would call this God the record keeper, and I'm going to share with you an extrapolation of what you just heard, because that's exactly how I read it. Uh, those first four verses, there is a corporate call, a corporate call for all to hear. When the psalmist says, hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. And then he begins to qualify what all ye people and all ye inhabitants of the world means. And it is low and high, rich and poor together. He is declaring that this message is for all to hear and he classes them as all of the inhabitants of the world and he states that they are all together in need of the truth, the wisdom, and the understanding that he will impart. He describes this truth in verse 4 as a dark saying. He says, I will open my dark saying upon the heart. If you're reading an ESV or an or a NASB, it says something along the lines of, I will sing my riddle on the harp. And so it's a very similar statement that they're making there. But what we understand is that that dark saying, it, it is, they're using the word riddle, but it simply means that what he's about to share is of a darker nature. It's not encouraging. There's, there's some 
negativity in it. There's some difficulty in it. It's as if the doctor were going to give you a prognosis that was dreadful. It, it would be a dark saying. That's what he's saying. I'm going to tell you the truth, and it's, it's, it's a dark saying. It's not comfortable. It's of a darker nature. It will be more educational than it will edification. It will require thought. It will require discernment. It will require a higher perspective than the mundane would afford. Here he's saying that I, I want you to uh, use your godly perspective to digest this truth. This is true of many of life's difficulties. This is a fact for many of life's mysteries. We must consider these things from an eternal perspective. We must have a heavenly point of view. We have to almost discount what we see with the natural eye, or at a minimum, we have to decode it. We have to see it, comprehend it as the here and now, but not the ever after. If we don't, then the, the difficulties are going to compound. No, knowing that there are yet unseen things that will impact the finality of what is currently seen and the fruition of what will be. So from a very extremely simplistic perspective, just think of the passing of a loved one. We've, we've had a lot of that lately. It affects your, uh, it is affected by your perspective. We as believers know that death is not the end. We as believers know that for the born again, death is a portal. It is a passage to the next life. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Good night and good morning. We know that that body laying in that casket or that body that was cremated was nothing but an old clay pot, an old tent. That's perspective. That's eternal perspective. That's the type of perspective that we have to apply when we're thinking about this dark saying that this man is going to share with us, when we start thinking about the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, we have to apply an eternal perspective to it. If we only apply this earthly perspective, this here and now perspective, it would be overwhelmingly discouraging. And we would start to think, well, maybe I need to be like the wicked so that I can have prosperity. But what we know is that the future for the wicked is not good. And so we want that promise of the future. By the way, that eternal perspective or that Godward perspective or uh, for the New Testament believer that Christ focus, that is what gets people in trouble so often because they start looking at the world around them rather than the world, the, the guy ahead of them. Uh, the, the children of Israel, I fully believe, fell hard for idolatry because they were looking at the culture around them. And that idolatry was directly linked to prosperity and success. And they wanted that prosperity and success. And they would plant a garden, for lack of a better term, and it would not produce. And so they would say to that Canaanite, why did your garden produce and mine did not? And he would say to them, well, I went and 
did my thing at the temple. And I went and appealed to the, the God of, of prosperity or the God of growth or the God of sun, whatever. And they would fall into that because they were using an earthly perspective rather than a heavenly focus or an eternal perspective. So in these first four verses, the psalmist says, this is for everyone, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter how poor you are, doesn't matter how wise you are, how simple you are, everybody comes together, everybody can understand this, and it is a dark saying. Then in verses 5 through 12, he shares with us this cautious counsel that we all need to heed, this cautious counsel for all to heed. And we've read that already, and so I won't read it all again, but he does start it with a question, wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my hills should compass me about, shall compass me about? I want you to, to know before I give you that question in a couple of other formats, these eight verses are one long but succinct thought. There is a question that we just read, and I'm going to rephrase it for you, from after that question, everything else is the answer to that question in these eight verses. And so the question which the psalmist has is why should, I'm going to read it to you in a different version. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? That's the same, I understand that old English is a little different. But this is from the, I think, from the NASB maybe. And so that's what he says. Why, why should I be in fear just because these, these foes have gathered around me and they are iniquitous people? Uh, uh, if we read that in the KJV, we just read that in the ESV, it says, wherefore should I fear in the days of evil? Excuse me, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat surrounds me? You see that? That's what he's asking. The question is, why do I need to be worried because I'm seeing all of the prosperity of these people when I realize that what they're doing is wickedness? It's iniquitous. It's cheating. The remainder of this division, these eight verses through verse 12, is the answer. They, we could easily answer that question, by the way, and, and you'll see some of this in here. In fact, I'm confident that the Lord had this in mind. Uh, we could answer this with the words of the Lord from Mark's gospel when he specifically said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen to those verses there. Look at, look at verse uh, uh, 6. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches... None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die. So do you see that he's saying? Their money is not going to get them there. They're, they can't buy it back from God. They can't redeem their own soul. They can't redeem the soul of their brother. They can't buy me. Not from God. God owns me. And so that's the, the comment. And the Lord would say, uh, what, what is the prophet? The psalmist is simply stating herein that the wealthy, no matter how wealthy, cannot redeem their brother. In fact, they can't redeem themselves with financial gain. And if they cannot redeem themselves, 
it is certain that they cannot condemn another because God is the one who condemns and redeems. And so only God can do that. Furthermore, what he teaches in these few verses is that everybody dies. For he seeth that wise men die. Wise people die. The fool dies. The brutish person dies. Do you see that? Everybody dies. So it's the rich man, it's the poor man, it's the wise man, it's the fool, it's the articulate man, it's the brutish man. They all die because the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 9 that it is appointed unto all men, what? Once to die, and then what? And then the judgment. And so this psalmist is simply stating an eternal truth that everybody's going to die. Not only is everybody going to die, this man that he's talking about sees that everybody dies. You say, well, what what does that have to do with it? Well, let's just think about the law of the curve for a minute. You guys know what the law of the curve is? So in a classroom, a curve would look like this. Everybody bombs, and so the teacher takes the highest grade and curves everybody because he takes some responsibility, or she takes some responsibility for the level of learning. They didn't get there. In social structure, the curve looks like this. This is not popular, uh, and so you know I don't expect you'll find a whole lot of people agreeing with me, uh, but I'm telling you the truth. This is what the curve looks like. The curve looks like this. Well, they say that environment and village is why kids and adults turn out the way they do. So if we could, if we could change the atmosphere in which they're living and being raised, it would change the outcome. And so they change the atmosphere. Tear down the old government housing, build multi-million dollar new government housing, move the people out of the old housing into the new housing, does it change the outcome? No, the new housing looks like the old housing. Well, you say, okay, well, where does the law of the curve come in there? Well, the law of the curve comes in there in individuals that get out and succeed. If one can do it, all of them can do it. If there had never been one grow up in a project and come out of the project and become successful or routine, whatever word you want to use, then you can say, absolutely, if you're born in there, you can never come out. But if one comes out, anybody can come out. Now apply that to death. In your life, how many people have you ever known to just keep on living? There's not one, right? Everybody dies. Everyone dies. That is the that is the fundamental value in a funeral for visiting people. For the family, the funeral is a time to get closure and to get some comfort and get a little salve. But for all those people that are there, The value of that funeral is to look up there and see that box and realize one of these days I'm going to be laying in one of those boxes. Am I prepared for that? That's what this psalmist is saying. This guy looks around, he knows everybody's going to die. 
Everyone dies. Not only do the rich, but everyone else. And, and when they die, what happens? Well, he, he says it there, and they leave their wealth to others. Solomon makes a big deal out of this in Ecclesiastes. I love that section. Because he's more tormented, uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is more tormented that the fool who did not earn his money is going to get to spend it than he is with the fact that he's going to die. He's got to leave it to somebody and they didn't even earn it. They don't even respect it. That's what this psalmist says. Uh, listen, everybody dies and when they do, they leave their wealth to another. So they die and their possessions are then someone else's. Their wealth is spent by another. And we see this born out every day. As the old saying goes, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, right? Because you can't take it with you when you go. Uh, you, you've heard that story about that old man that was dying, he was wealthy. And he told his wife, said, take all my money and put it in the attic so I can get it on my way out. And about a week after he died, she finally got the nerve to go up there and look, and the money was still there. And she said, I knew he was going to go the other way. <laughs> you can't take it with you, right? When you die, you die. That's what the psalmist is teaching. The psalmist is teaching that, listen, all of this stuff that they're depending on is all temporal. It's going to canker. It's going to rust. It's going to rot. It's going to fall away. It is no, there is no eternal value on it. And then he goes on to, to describe their inner thoughts. He says there in verse 11, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. And their dwelling places to all generation, and they call their lands after their own names. That idea that their houses will dwell forever, you know, they just, uh, every man, uh, every man a king, and every man has a castle. And this is mine, and, and I've got it, and I've paid for it, and I, it's mine, I own it. But when you die, it's gone, and that will not be your home forever. In fact, uh, the grave will be. You might even relate it to their health. Uh, Paul describes uh, this whole body in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter five. He describes it as a as a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling place. And maybe these people, you would see them that they relate this to their health. They believe that medicines and exercise and diet and specialists. And they can live on. They can just keep on. These people that get into uh, cryogenics, you know, freeze my brain when I die. So when you figure out how to make us live forever, you can wake me back up and all that stuff. Right? They're counting on something other than God. They're counting on their money. They're counting on science. They're counting on abilities. And they're thinking that old tent's going to last longer, that their clay pot is going to be eternal. And admittedly, some people's clay pot is better than other people's clay pot. I said to uh, the graveside Friday at Carla's granddad, he was 95 and healthy right up until the day, uh, he, not mentally, but physically. I told him he must have bought his tent at Woolworths, and I got mine at Walmart because his held up a lot better than mine. Amen. Right? I mean, that happens. We comprehend that, but, but we understand that age gets the best of us. All the, 
I thought about all the songs and dirges written about decrepancy of the body and the regrets of the past and the loss of the faculties and the changing of the seasons, if you will, and the withering of the flower. It's age. We all age. We all grow old. And the psalmist says that sooner or later, we all die. He says there in that same verse that they name their lands after themselves. He's talking about legacy. He's talking about these people that think they'll live on forever in their legacy, their family name, their accomplishments, their, their philanthropic work. But in time, everything about this life dies and it is no longer remembered. Even in all of the pomp and success in this life, he says in verse 12, Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beast that perished. Even in all the pomp and success of life, even the height of popularity, even in great honor, death is, everybody dies the same. The rich people don't die any different than the poor people do. Everybody dies the same. And just like the beast of the earth, uh, the heart stops and the mind stops and the body decays and we die. It's a fact of life. So we come back to the question the psalmist said, why should I fear? In the days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, why do I need to be afraid of them? They, just like me, are going to die. But I know that life is temporary and that God is the author and giver and taker of life. And eternity should be the concern. So that's what he says in verses 13 through 15. He begins to show us a comparison between their death and his and the coming hope for the redeemed. This, their way, is their folly. This depending on wealth and depending on legacy and depending on name and depending on power, that, that way, that's their way. And the psalmist says it's folly, yet their posterity agrees with them. So, uh, Mr. Wigglesworth would say, well, Papa Wigglesworth did it. Daddy Wigglesworth did it. Wigglesworth Jr. is going to do it. Wigglesworth III is going to do it. This is how we do life. And their posterity agrees with them. Isn't that interesting? And he says there, after he says, and their posterity agrees, approves their sayings, he says, Selah. Think about that for a minute. Even they see that he died. And when he died, they got all of his wealth. But they still approve of his sayings. Because they're dark and they're depraved. They're separated from God. This is a contrast in comparison. First, he, he, he states that their way is their folly and their kind agree and approve of it. But then he says that the grave is what they have to look forward to. And when they go to the grave, they'll go as helpless sheep. And then death will consume them. And, and this next statement may be the greatest of all. But look at verse 14. Like sheep, they're laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. What does that next statement say? And the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Do you see that? 
I've got that in caps right here in my outline. All caps, big bold letters. All and the upright will rule over them. You know who the upright are? The upright is the psalmist that's writing this. The upright are the righteous. The upright are the ones who are in God. They are in Christ. They are dependent upon that eternal perspective that is based on the grace of God. And those people are going to rule when the wicked have come to their end. God will exalt the righteous when the wicked are laid low. The wicked will be consumed. They'll make their dwelling in the grave or in death, if you prefer. Their beauty, he says in verse 14, their beauty shall consume in the grave for, from their dwelling. And then he, he makes that triumphant statement, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Think on that, he says. They're all dying. They're thinking on the wrong things. They're depending on the wrong things. They agree with one another in their iniquity. But God's going to redeem my soul. Think on that. God will redeem my soul, the psalmist says. that They may torment me, but He will redeem me and He will receive me. Why would I fear the tormentors? The grave will consume them, but God will redeem me. And then we have these last few verses, 16 through 20. And here what we see is the consideration of and the conclusion of the hopeless. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dieth, he carrieth nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men praised thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generations of his fathers, and they shall never see light. Man that is honor, it's a repeat of verse 12, and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. They have no hope. There's no hope for them. They're hopeless. Be thou not afraid. Isn't that awesome? Do not worry. Do not fret. Do not be consumed with anxiety. Wealth is temporary. Even when they seem to be at their zenith, death comes with it and it will, with, and it will bring with it a level playing field. Even if he lived as a king in this life, above the law, taking advantage of all, it would not follow him to the grave. Although he lived, and while he lived, they praised him and he enjoyed it. Death is the great equalizer. He will go the way of others like him. He will never see the light. Do you remember the rich man in Lazarus? And didn't particularly say anything negative about the rich man other than he fared sumptuously and we know that that beggar laid in his gates and he never had any concern for him. But when the rich man appealed to Father Abraham, he said to him, remember in your life you had it made. I'm paraphrasing. They're getting all the heaven they'll ever get right now. That's it. Now, are we to celebrate that? Well, no, I don't think so. 
I think that we should be uh, moved uh, to compassion for them, that we ought to uh, be more aggressive in evangelizing them. We ought to be less uh, quick to draw the sword against them when they seemingly do us wrong. That's what Christ would indicate in Matthew 5 and 6. But we understand that that wealth is a temporary thing. And all that power they have is lulling them to sleep. And they're trusting in their own ability rather than in the goodness of God. And again, he says, even in great honor, Death is death. And just like the beast of the earth, as we said a moment ago, your heart stops, your mind stops, your body decays, we all die. It's a fact of life. I like this dark saying because it reminds me to keep my focus eternal and to keep my perspective eternal. It reminds me to Enjoy the blessings that God puts in my life, but uh, if I could, not to be too corny, but hold on loosely to those things because they are not the end of all or the end all be all. He is. I'm glad I know the Redeemer. Amen? I'm thankful that the grave is not the end of light for me. I'm glad to know that this old rotten world system and its Wicked winners and cheating champions and popular powerhouses is just a facade. It's just what we can see here, but it's not real. Eternity is real, and eternity is going to flip the stage and right the wrongs. The righteousness of God ensures as much. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. I pray you'd be with us as we go into our prayer time. Help us, Lord, as we lift up these names of these folks who need prayers, as we share praises. Father, I just pray that you'd be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.